There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one compares. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four! Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast, and a whole load of badass. With me, Harriet Minter, Emma Sexton, and Amanda Prowse. This week, we meet Margaret Heffernan, author of How to Map the Future Together, and we talk about leadership and trying to predict what might happen. Plus, we also talk to author Sarah Hussein about writing the first British Muslim family saga. Do you think that you like to be able to predict the future? Would you like to be a forecaster? Would you be able to see what's going to happen in 5, 10, 15 years? Do you think think you know how to do it? (laughs) Uh, Our next guest says everything we think we know about forecasting the future and trying to predict it, probably wrong. Uh, Welcome, Margaret Heffernan, author of How to Map the Future Together. Hello. Hi. Uh, Why are we so... Uh, drawn to and need Mm. to try and predict what is going to happen? Well, we're drawn to wanting to know the future because we think we could make better decisions and better plans that way. I mean, my book kind of kicked off when a friend of mine said, you know, if I knew I was going to live to be 95, I'd drink more. (laughs) (laughs) I want that to be my friend too. And it's, you know, and it just, it really stuck with me. And I thought, you know, we we want to know the future because then we can make decisions, you Mm -hmm. know, according to it. But I think, you know, but and that's really part of what led me to start looking at forecasting and discovering that actually really nobody can do it. So the very, 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 very best forecasters in the world say they, they're reasonably accurate 400 days out. Wow. After that, forget it. 400 days? Hang on. 400 days. 365 days in the year. So yeah, so about just over a year. 14 months. Wow. So we can so, roughly predict 14 months in, but that's after it. that... That's Yes. So, you know, when people start talking about what's going to happen in 2035, you know, there was this very famous uh, academic report saying 47% of jobs would have disappeared by 2035. And everybody took it really, really seriously. And actually, you just think, we know nothing about 2035, but 47% (laughs) sounds so gritty. I mean, it sounds really authoritative, like you must really have crunched a lot of numbers. And if anybody, which nobody did, had looked at the original paper, the first sentence 
sentence basically says we have a new model which means nobody's ever done this before so they don't know if it's right or not you know <laughs> so we're surrounded by this stuff all the time and we kind of want it we want to believe in some of it even though it's all nonsense because then we think we can plan accordingly but can, but can we influence the future though right when you because I, I i feel like some of these trend forecasters sometimes if you banged on enough about all the yeah. jobs go oh, maybe, maybe that's not a good one but i don't know if you banged on enough about uh uh, sun cream being the new, I don't know. Well, like, we saw it around Brexit, right, didn't we? So yeah, we saw yeah. lots of people saying, there's going to be a shortage of, and yeah, suddenly yeah, everyone right. making yeah, a run on right. the supermarket. Yeah. So, so there are two really interesting things going on here. One is forecasting is about trying to shape what's coming forward. Yeah. So it's kind of actually trying to influence rather than trying to explore. And actually, I think a huge amount of forecasting is really just propaganda. You know, mm. We were supposed to have driverless cars in 2016. 17? 18? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Not here yet. Turns out they're much harder. But one reason companies say, oh, some companies say, you know, we're going to do this by tomorrow is to scare everybody off and say, oh, God, we better not go to that. If Google's there, we better not because we can't uh, compete with Google. Right. So actually, most forecasting is really propaganda. And we need to hear it like that and realise when people start talking about what's going to happen in 2035 and 2042 and all this kind of stuff, actually, they're just trying to, to eat our minds. They don't actually know. And what they're confident of is that by the time 2035 comes around, nobody will remember. So they can say anything they want. <laughs> so what about financial forecasting? Because mm. I find this as well. I run a business and at the beginning of the year, you do your plans and yep. you do, you're told to do a one-year plan and a five-year five plan right, and a ten-year plan. Now, don't get me wrong. I know exactly how much money I want to make this year and I know exactly right. how much money I need to make. Do right. I have any clue if that's going to happen? Exactly. No, no. <laughs> I don't. And then what happens is everybody starts thinking we have to work to the plan. Yeah. Which, yeah. you know, if it's... But then it's... I need a plan to try and get to what I'm and do you? doing. Well, I kind of feel like, I mean, I'll let you know in December, but I kind <laughs> of feel like if I do all these actions, the results should be at least yeah. that I will break even. But I think often what happens is people have this plan. It says, well, you know, this month I'm going to make £10,000 and next month I'm going to make £12,000. And if they do, then they feel really successful. But if they don't, they feel they feel that they've failed. Mm, but the true. following month, they might make £25,000. So they're, you know, they're driving themselves according to a fantasy of their own making. Yeah, that's me. I've right? <laughs> and, and I mean, I've seen this, you know, because I ran three tech companies when I worked in the states and you would do the you know the one-year plan and a five-year plan and so on but the thing is secretly you knew that if the timeline went awry which it always yes, does stuff happens then the rest is nonsense so it's really just a kind of comforting fantasy to give your investors so that they feel you know what you're doing and yet CEOs and CFOs often have to fall on their sword because those predictions have been wildly inaccurate or slightly right. out and yet but also people think they're great leaders if they hit the share price on the money. <laughs> and there are companies like in the past, like GE and Microsoft, that did that for something like 42 quarters in a row to the penny. Wow. That is statistically impossible yeah. to do. Wow. So what that means is not that they're brilliant you know, forecasters. It means they're managing their finances with probably more attention to detail than they're managing their people. Mm. That seems to me kind of upside down. Mm. Interesting. So in a way, they've almost forecasted what they were going to hit. And anyway. even if there's potential for them to keep, 
to hit more. Don't it's do like, it. No, don't want to do it. Because it so looks, thought, it yeah. makes you look like such a master of control yeah. that you hit it right on the penny. There's also this fantastic thing which um, the an academic who studies forecasting, Philip Tetlock, discovered, which is the more famous the forecaster is, the more often they're wrong. <laughs> which, wow. So, so this notion that there's some people who just have the vibe, right? That turns out to be nonsense because they get really kind of boxed in by their brand and they believe certain economic theories and they're stuck with it even when it goes wrong over and over and over again, you know. So they really, really believe that, you know, tax cuts will promote growth and they will forecast that long after it's been proved that it's not true because that's kind of what they stand for. So the more they have to pump up their own image and their own brand, the more they will ignore what's staring them right in the face. So one of the things that I found really interesting about the kind of, uh, within your book, is this idea that actually we have been misjudging leaders, that we haven't really been looking at them in a kind of accurate and forensic detail. Can you tell us a bit about why we do that? So this is really interesting. I mean, I think leadership, you know, which is a deeply dodgy subject anyway, (laughs) Um, you know, ha- suffers from this um, ascertainment bias, which is there are lots of profiles of leaders derived from so-called successful leaders in the past. But how do you know what made them successful? So you can take somebody like Churchill is always the classic example. So everything about Churchill contributed to his success. Clearly, drinking at least a bottle of champagne every day <laughs> contributed to his success. You know, being hated by the Welsh contributed to his success. You know, what people do is they think, well, your everything you did contributed to your success. It had nothing to do with the mistakes of your opponents. Mm-hmm. It had nothing to do with luck. And it had nothing to do with anybody else. Mm. Right. So Mm. your wife didn't contribute to your success. Mm. All the people around you who worked their socks off, they had nothing to do with it. It was just the magical leader. And, you know, and whole businesses have been built out around this. So the Myers-Briggs profile was originally designed according to characteristics that Myers and Briggs thought defined great leaders. Now, let's be clear about this. Myers and Briggs, both women, all the leaders they studied were all men. So all the characteristics of leadership, you know, so Abraham Lincoln and people like yeah. that, they're all male. Yeah. So the idea of, of leadership as contained in the Myers-Briggs profiling instrument was based on male norms. No wonder I didn't get that job. I'm glad you said that because I, for a long time, have felt that we have a working culture that only celebrates and only looks for alpha male traits. And there's lots of women who've succeeded in business and they go, well, there's no problem. I haven't suffered from any inequality. And I'm like, you might not because maybe you are an alpha person and you've thrived in that kind of environment. But I've always felt like that, that work is very one-dimensional. And as a business leader, I'm losing that term loosely because you've just Mm. obviously... (laughs) But like, I'm I'm now trying to work out what is what is a... What is a feminine way or, or what what femininity can I add to my business leadership right. and how can I create a different working mm-hmm. culture where people can thrive because traditionally that one-dimensional culture didn't work. So I'm, I'm yeah. interested that you said Well, it, it's interesting because when I ran my tech companies in the States, I'd never met another female tech CEO. Mm. And... Um, and so that, that meant I kind of had to invent it for myself, which gave me quite a lot of freedom. 
But I remember at one point um, I had my second child, a daughter, and I came back to work and my chairman said, oh, Margaret, have you been on vacation? <laughs> and I said, no, David, actually I've had a baby. And it struck me afterwards that actually at no level in his head did he see me as female, mm. which on one level was really helpful because, you know, he took me seriously. But on the other hand, it meant, I think, that it encouraged me to conform to a male norm. Right. And I remember once on a plane just kind of daydreaming and thinking about my daughter who'd recently been born and thinking, I wonder how she'll describe me when she's grown up. And I thought, I'll bet she'll call me really tough. <laughs> and I remember thinking, that's terrible. That's not what I want to be known for. I've become tough because that's what all these guys around me needed me to be. But maybe now I want to be something else. I am fascinating. We're going to keep talking to the amazing Margaret Heffernan all about leadership and how we change it here on Badass Women's Hour. The Badass Women's Hour is Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. Three women, one podcast and a whole load of badass. As long as we've had our coffee. Margaret, uh, just before the break, we were talking about this idea that leadership is defined by kind of masculine traits, toughness, aggression, go-getting. Do you think, given how much that we've talked about that in the last few years, given things like the financial crash that happened, this idea that Lehman Brothers would never have happened if it was Lehman Sisters, except it probably would have done, but, you know, <laughs> um, have we started to change leadership? Well, I think we have for two reasons. One is because that expectation, even of men, mm. as you can see, isn't necessarily producing great results, hence the yeah. mental health issues that you've just been talking about. Yeah. Um, also, you've seen a lot more women come into business being really very successful. I mean, the second book I ever wrote was about why it was that female-owned businesses in the United States were more successful than businesses on average, which was some, some little factoid everybody seemed to have ignored conveniently. <laughs> um, but I think really what we're seeing is a shift from thinking of business as this kind of brutal mechanical assembly line where everything is predictable and known and measured and so on to an understanding that actually in the world today, because so much is unpredictable, you need a much more organic, much more flexible, much more creative mindset to deal with the unexpected because the unexpected is always going to crop up. And so if you have this very kind of rigid, tough, kind of hard, immovable style of leadership, you're simply not going to be able to cope. Mm -hmm. And I think in that respect, I like to think it could be quite a good age for women because I think women are brilliant at change. I think they're very unafraid of it because they do it all the time. And, they, and are also very good at picking up weak, weak signals that show actually change is coming and they notice things that other people don't notice. And I think they're often much more in touch with the market and with real life than those who are only seeing what the spreadsheet told them to look at. Do you think also that I think, is it fair to say it's being more recognised that a more empathetic leader mm. gets more out of the people who are working yeah. for them? And Well, and there's fantastic research on that, especially showing in teams that empathy is really a defining characteristic of outstanding teams. You know, people are motivated by each other. They do better work together if those people, you know, if they care about each other. Mm. They'll go the extra mile for the colleagues that care about them. 
And that's inf infinitely more motivating than, you know, key performance indicators and all these kind of targets and goals and all this kind of nonsense. That actually, if you start managing people like robots, the big danger is that's how they'll behave and you'll get nothing out of them that you couldn't predict. You treat them as humans, you get phenomenal creativity, imagination, you know, commitment, and so on. And actually, that's what distinguishes fantastic companies that the people want to work in. Margaret, when you, when you look back at your time as leading these big companies, mm. what would you do differently? Is there, do you now, with all the research and the books that you've written, if you had that time again, is there, what would you do differently? That's a great question. I think I'd be more confident about the stuff that made me different. I mean, I think I was pretty confident about it, but I would think I would be more confident about it. I mean, I think that, you know, very often women get so stereotyped and it's easy to fall into that stereotype. And one of the things I did in my tech companies is I hired a lot of people, and I did that actually in previous companies too. I hired a lot of people, a lot of women who were very overlooked and underrated. And they just were golden. They turned out, you know, when you gave them the opportunity to do such exceptional work, many of them have since formed their own companies. These were brilliant, brilliant people whom nobody had noticed because they were just being what everybody expected them to be, kind of quiet, quite submissive <laughs> and so on. And you give them an opportunity and some space to roam and they were just staggering. They are absolutely staggering. And if I have any regret, it's that I didn't do more of that. You know, that I made sometimes conventional hires for with, you know, hired people with men with degrees from Harvard Business School, you know, who turned out to be kind of predictable. <laughs> In an unpredictable industry, that isn't what you want. You don't want somebody who wants to know exactly what's going to happen six months from today. You want people who are fearless saying we're going to do the best, best work we can. And if it doesn't work out, we'll fix it. And I think that adaptable mindset is just absolutely fundamental to the business environment today. I love this idea of having people who say, well, if it doesn't work out, we're going to fix it. It'll be okay. Yeah. Because it's, that's the idea that actually nothing is forever. Not, yeah. You know, it, it doesn't matter if something goes wrong now because at some point you will find another right. way to write it or to make good again. That, for me, says a level of bravery in mm. business and in yourself. And one of the things that I know you've talked about is the idea of creating a culture where people are brave. So yes. they speak up, they say what's going on for them, they talk about things that they're not happy with. Mm. So often, I think, in organisations, we are anti-conflict. We don't want to rock the right. boat. We don't want to have employees who say, hang on, have you noticed this? How do organisations get past that and actually start to embrace the idea that somebody disagreeing with you in the boardroom is a it's, good thing. It's a gift. It's an absolute gift. I mean, I wrote this book called Willful Blindness, which was about how, you know, all the big disasters, both business and otherwise, tend to happen not because of information you couldn't have known, but information which you overlooked, you know, that you kind of, it was so uncomfortable you chose not to look at it. And I see this in business all the time. I see boards that are just that agree with each other and they're too concerned to keep the peace. Is that through fear, Margaret? It's mostly through fear fear. And I think this is getting worse. You know, there was this extraordinary news article uh, this week which showing that Barclays was surveilling its employees. Right. This is guaranteed to make people super frightened. And what that means, and actually what it meant at Barclays during the banking crisis, was that people who knew things were going badly wrong didn't speak up. 
because they were afraid. They were afraid of rocking the boat. And you see this all the time, Volkswagen emissions, you know, Wells Fargo mis-selling, I mean, all these sort of things, Lloyd's mis-selling, that actually everybody knows what's going on. And everybody's afraid to put their hand up and say, hey, we have a problem. But if they did put their hand up and say, we have a problem, you could fix the problem. But as long as everyone's too afraid, then the problem has time to get worse and worse and worse. And I think, you know, this comes back in a way to these very kind of, I think, old-fashioned ideas of leadership as being full of kind of power and dominance. Mm -hmm. You know, that actually you want leaders who make people feel valued and safe and safe enough to think for themselves, which is, by the way, what they're being paid for, and to say where they think actually if something's going wrong or also if they spot an opportunity that everybody knows about but nobody's talking about. I mean, I always wonder, you know, people say Google's like the greatest company on the earth ever in the history of mankind, you know. And yet, strangely enough, nobody at Google thought to put their hand up when Facebook was launched and say, this is kind of cool. Maybe we should think about this social networking thing. Not for three years. You know they were on it. You know they were playing with it. The guys who founded Twitter were working at Google (laughs) at the time, you know, but nobody said anything. Now, I'm not sure we need or want two Facebooks, but I think from an innovation perspective, you definitely want people who have the courage to put up their hands up and say, you know, I know we're doing this, but there's this cool opportunity over there. What do you think? What do you think is, um, what do you think kind of drives some of this fear of speaking up? So you talked about lack of safety and facility. Mm. I'm also wondering if there's something around pay and how we... Uh, so we've had a lot of chat here about gender pay gap, about mm. um, kind of high and low salaries. I wonder if there's something yeah. which creates a culture of actually if you're not being paid very much, you just are too scared to lose even right. that. Well, I think it's both pay, but it's also all the stuff that happens around the business. Mm-hmm. So I remember in the lead up to the financial crisis thinking, actually, we have the conditions for the most compliant workforce ever because everybody is carrying gigantic mortgages. They all have enormous amounts of debt. And nobody doing that is going to put their hand Mm. up and say, oh, I think we have a problem. Mm. You know, they're going to do exactly what they're told. And the real problem in the banking crisis and in all sorts of other, you know, corporate disasters is that everybody is doing exactly what they've they've been told to do. And as a, you know, as a CEO, I used to think, if I ask people to do something mad, bad or dangerous, I really want somebody to put their hand up and say, Margaret, you're out of your mind. This is stupid. We should do X, not Y. You know, that's the whole premise of organizational life, which is that people working together can see more and know more than any one person alone. But if everybody does what they're told, you're really in a dangerous spot. Do you think there's more chance now than ever for people to really shape the way they run their companies? It seems to me that there's no set way of doing things mm. as there always was, you know, largely under a patriarchy that kept us very much yeah. under that glass ceiling. Do you think there's now more chance for us to change things? Well, you're certainly seeing lots of experiments in how people run companies. You're seeing the rise of self-managed companies and self-managed teams. You're finding a lot of um, different kinds of ownership structures with co-ops and things like that. So I think there's a recognition that the traditional way of doing it isn't necessarily the best and that if you structure companies differently, you can get quite a lot more out of people. Um, You know, the danger is that people tend to think, 
well, if there's one structure that works, it will always work everywhere. You know, we always mm -hmm. want the one simple solution yeah. that will work for everybody. And I think I've seen some brilliant companies all over the world in every industry with weird, funky structures that work for them. I don't think you can necessarily just copy them and place yeah. them on top of something else. But the good news is I think it is challenging a lot of preconceptions and make, making people feel as they create their own businesses. I don't have to do it like General Motors. That's what you were talking about, Emma, about work-life balance, about when... Yeah, so at my business, I don't have an office. We're mm -hmm. remote first. Uh, I'm an all-female team, and actually one of my team just went on maternity, and her husband emailed me to say thank you for, you know, the way I'd handled her maternity leave and mm. involved her in that, and also the fact that it Great. wasn't stressful and that just the way... For me, it, my team come first. I have right. a philosophy of team first, clients second. Right. If my team are happy and thriving, then right. I know they'll deliver exactly. great work. And right. yeah, and it's been challenging doing that because, yeah. you know, a lot of people are like, well, why are you running your business like that? You're too generous. You're, yeah. you know. Um, you're too soft. You're too, yeah, you're too soft. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, too, too, too generous I get all the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny because my tech companies were in Massachusetts where um, pregnancy is considered a disability, so mm. you can get you can get disability <laughs> leave, you know. And I thought, well, this is just ridiculous. So I said to the women working for me when they were pregnant, just go home and have your baby and tell me when you want to come back. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm just going to keep you on the payroll. Yeah. This is ridiculous, you know. And they all came back and they not one of them let me down. I think we all want to work for you, Margaret. We do. Yes. They all want to work for Margaret. <laughs> Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Margaret Heaven and her book, How to Map the Future Together, is out now. I mean, you can tell from our chat, she's just a world of brilliance. Thank you so much for coming in and joining us. Well, it's been fun. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. We will be back after this. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. 
We are lucky to be joined in the studio by Sarah Hussein, author of The Family Tree, um, out now, published by HarperCollins, and just destined, basically, to be a bit of bestseller. Also, one of the most beautiful covers we've ever seen on a book cover on this show. Envy. Oh, Real cover amazing. envy. Amazing. Uh, Sarah, welcome to Badass Women's Hour XL. How are you doing? I'm OK, thank you. Thank you so much for coming to chat us. Tell us, uh, to start, give us a synopsis. What is the book about? Um, so it's a multi-generational family saga, and it's set in the north of England. Um, it Basically, it follows a British Muslim family. Um, we follow three family members throughout through three decades. And it starts with Umjad, who's a widowed father, and he's trying his best to raise his two children. Um, but when the kids are older, a brutal random attack sort of changes their lives forever, and it sends the family off into different directions. Um, so the story sort of follows them as they sort of try to find their way back to each other. I love that. And I love this idea of a family saga set in the UK about a Muslim family because mm. it's... Oh, when I think of family saga, I think of those kind of Penny Vincenzi from exactly. 1920s. <laughs> Victoriana. Know, Victoriana, gotcha. Georgiana, yep. all that. Um, and this is a feels like a really modern spin on it. Was that your kind of... Was that the idea, what you wanted to do? Yeah, I, I wanted to focus on a Muslim family. I'm a Muslim, so... And I just wanted to just hear a different side because we always sort of get the same stories forced marriages suicide bombers oppressed women yeah. that kind of thing and it feels like as though average day-to-day -day problems that everybody goes through they apply to us as well we go through the same things so my sort of aim was that if you were to replace this family with bob and sue and anybody else you could easily do that because the storyline would ch stay the same and it, yeah. it's not sort of ethnicized or just because the family yeah, yeah. is brown and Muslim. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what I was hoping to achieve with that. Yeah. And this is your first book, did you say? It is, yeah. Wow. So have you always kind of wanted to write? I, I'm, I'm always interested in authors and where they get their inspiration for the story and then also what was their journey to kind of getting your first book published? Because that's, you know, congratulations. Yeah. It's not you. an easy thing. <laughs> yeah, um, I was always really good at English at school. I was sort of known for being good at English. That's how cool I was. Um, <laughs> You're amongst friends. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know who's laughing now. You're the one with the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Um, but I did. I studied English at uni, and I was lucky because I because I got first. I got a scholarship to progress on to uh, MA study, but it was a research degree in creative writing. So I basically wrote the start of this novel mm -hmm. for my our masters, and then I progressed on to PhD. So I I wrote the book whilst I was at uni, basically, and then obviously did the research aspect as well. Um, and then it was when I was at the Bradford Literature Festival, which I've been going through to since the start, um, I met my publisher, Lisa. She's called Lisa Milton. She's, oh, um, we love Lisa. Oh, we know Lisa. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah. 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 I haven't met anybody who doesn't love Lisa. <laughs> oh, <that's great. laughs> yeah. She's just a massive champion of, you know, women writers. Yeah. And she's just passionate about sharing stories, isn't yeah. she? Yeah. So she's quite involved with the festival in Bradford. And she did a panel on how to get published, which I went to. And then at the end, sort of people started queuing up to talk to her and like pitch their books to her, which I did as well. And she offered to read it. And then I got them a few weeks later, I got the most amazing email <laughs> from her um, saying that she wanted to be my publisher. So amazing. it's really, I keep reminding myself that this, you know, it doesn't happen. It's not normally this easy. I feel bad when I hear other people's <laughs> yeah. and their stories of how difficult it was 
to get published, but I was really, really, really lucky. Yeah, <laughs> with how it happened. but also super smart because you're going to the literary festival, you're, you're writing the book. So <laughs> I don't know. I'm a big believer in luck, but I'm also a big believer in the fact that you've done the work so that you were there to have the opportunity to get that, yeah. get that break. But also, you know? if you think how many books are pitched and how many works people read, it's got to be an exceptional work to to rise to the top and this yeah. has so it's obviously a brilliant book and that's why you've got the success yeah. you have it was Thank a bit you. of luck but it yeah. must be a brilliant book so there'll be more then oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm writing i'm, I'm writing no my pressure. second second novel early stages but yeah. yeah how are you finding novel. it going for the second one? it's really hard is it, is it yeah. because this i felt like my last year at uni when i was undergraduate it was in my mind like constantly and i had to write it and now I've got a deadline <laughs> and I'm being yeah. told I need to come up with something and I need to, you know, match this or at least, uh, you know, as good, so if not a like bit a better. Yeah, really, yeah. really mm. difficult. But yeah, and just set yourself a task because it's a big old book. So now you're known <laughs> oh, for writing yeah. big books. I know. I can't believe I actually thought I could put... Well, I did pull it off. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it did. It is because it <laughs> it's, it's three viewpoints, three decades. But it's quite, yeah. It was a lot. Yeah, I don't how know. How do your family feel about it? Because when we ask, you know, when we have first time authors in, we always say, you know, how much of you is in the book? But this is a family saga, so how much of your family mm. is in the book? Yeah, bits and nothing, luckily, nothing this bad has ever happened <laughs> to us. But um, yeah, there's definitely, I, my, one of my aunties read it and she, she kept saying, oh, that bit, I remember this bit, and this bit is so and so, and this bit is so and so. But I think you put, um, parts of yourself in the book and you, people that you know, your family and friends, definitely they're all like little shadows floating around. I get in the impression there. that Sarah isn't quite telling us who some of these people are based on because you don't want them to know, is that right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> what would you say to other young Muslim writers out there who are potentially thinking, well, I don't really see myself in the publishing world, mm. you know, I don't know who, if I'm going to be listened to, that it's not my stories that want to be heard, what would you tell them? I'd tell them not to wait for anyone's permission and to just write. And I think because I, I, I do sort of, I work at university, I'm sort of there and I, I read stuff that, you know, some of the students write. I feel like as though sometimes they feel like as though, well, this is what people think I should be writing about. I need to be writing about forced marriages and I need to be writing about, you know, as someone be, becoming radicalised, you don't need to do anything, you can do whatever you want. Um because I once asked one of the students, I said, "Why you've put this in here? Why, why? I don't." And they've said, like, I, "I don't really know." And it's like, did they think that that's what? Because that's all they've mm. ever seen. They think that that's what they should be writing, and that's what will get them somewhere. But they don't have to. And that's a challenge, right? Because you know, stories like your story—they're not being shared. And, and even though what you're saying is your story is everyday normality, mm. but you know, a slightly different context, and we're just massively lacking that. And I know Lisa Milton's on a, on a mission to really share those diverse stories. Yeah. But you know, it's—it's it's having a trickle-down effect, right? Because how do you encourage the next generation of writers if they're not reading materials that yeah. they could aspire to write that they can relate to? So yeah. it's all almost like this vicious circle isn't it so it's great that we're we're getting more stories out there yeah. like yours yeah <laughs> and there's something about um i love this idea you said you just write what you know i think there's so often when you're looking at what to write particularly for novelists they're like oh well what's really popular at the moment is this you know, what's really popular at the moment is kind of uh 
those kind of girl on a train, give me a kind of psychological thriller. And actually what you're saying is just come back to what you you are interested in, the story you want to tell. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. There's also, um, I think, a bit of a burden, I I talk about this quite a lot, um, Mm -hmm. placed on writers of colour. So... um, because there's not that much um, out there already, there's limited representation and sometimes, unfortunately, a lot of it has been negative. So I think if something does come out, everybody wants to see themselves in in that, um, which can be really burdensome and really difficult, but that's why we just need to sort of encourage um, people to write what they want, however they want to, and just have more representation in in that way. How do you think we get more of those books published? Do you think it is about... Is it the publishing industry that needs to open their eyes and be more aware? Do we need more people like you standing up and being like, just write the stories, get them out there? What do you think will encourage these young writers to come forward and then get them published? Yeah, I think from my from what's happened with me, I know that I go into my uni and I the faces of like there's like a few like asian kids in the in the class and they'll see me and they'll see my book and they'll be like and they think you can just see it on their faces that they're you know they're so happy and they're so excited that this is possible um but i think with the publishing industry it's really difficult because um it's hard how do you reach out to the audience but it's it's all about gatekeepers which we talk Mm -hmm. about quite a lot so if books are being submitted to agents and then there's so many sort of gatekeepers that you have to get through to get with me it was I was so lucky I just went straight to Lisa (laughs) who's like the executive publisher um but I don't know I think um there's uh, been a few schemes like the right now uh, right is it right now live scheme I think um things like that just to reach out not just um with racial but also social diversity regional diversity as well yeah I think yeah (laughs) and just absolutely on regional diversity and loving your accent as you're talking it's just beautiful uh sarah she's saying author of the family tree which is out now beautiful wonderful family saga go buy it you've been listening to badass women's hour if you like the show then help more people find us you can tag us or talk to us on social media using at badass women's hour or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating five stars please It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 